Hey everyone. I just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode touches on topics of drug use and suicide. If those topics aren't for you, then feel free to skip this episode and we'll see you next time. The river is moving fast. The moonlight makes it a kind of glassy black. Tonight, the river is moving fast. I don't think it's coming back. Stuart Lupton. The bear is a record that is full of memories and moments, each giving us a glimpse at who we were, who we are, and what we want to leave behind. The fourth track of the album, Baseball Diamonds, demonstrates this particularly well, with a lyrically dense, almost rambling song that starts with the summer rain. As hunters in the snow taught us, with rain comes a new season, washing away the troubles of new green and providing a path for peaceful recollection. Well, an early summer rain just came and flooded out the old French drains and broke the clock. Now the tick-tock stops when the red bird pulls the chain. And me, I'm locked inside today, watching another baseball game. The pitcher to the catcher to the pitcher and back again. We're not going to spend too much time on the lyrics in this episode. Because Baseball Diamonds is an important step in the history of the bear. It was the first song written for the album, and tracking its inspirations takes us through Walt's life via a lineage of lost loved ones that brings us all the way back to the Baseball Diamonds of his childhood. You see, as a kid, before music stole his heart and attention, Walter loved Baseball. Yeah, I, I was really into baseball. All my friends played baseball and I got really into it. And it was sort of my my obsession. It was really what I focused on. It did a lot for me. I think it allowed me to sort of have confidence. He was a great baseball player and really very good and a really active participant until he fell upon rock and roll. And then then then, the, then it switched one day when I met my friend Stuart and we I switched to being uh, completely obsessed with music, and uh, that, that obsession never ended. Once he and Stu kind of got together, baseball took a side seat. Stuart Lupton was a lifelong friend of Walt's, and the lead singer and lyricist of Jonathan Fireeater. I wanted to learn more about Stuart, so I called up Walt while he was out on the road with the Walkman, and we recorded the interview on his phone. Okay, I'm going to start that now. Perfect. Uh, I'm going to start the Zoom recording. As two adolescents exploring music, Walt and Stuart pushed each other to develop their musical palette. I think more like we, were, we kind of pushed each other to get into, like, into developing our tastes in ways that we might not have without each other. You know, like tr trying to surprise each other with the cool things that we found. You know, like I remember like getting into classical music, you know, which for two guys who were very like rock and roll and like cool uh getting into classical music felt like oh wow this is kind of like dangerous territory and it felt very exciting we were like oh hey we like classical music eventually they started writing their own music 
quickly after that we learned we did learn chords and we you know we started like writing songs and stuff like that uh even though they were just very silly songs we didn't really know anything about music or rhythm or chords or anything their first performance was at margaret gould's birthday party at her house in third i think it was third grade we started a band and so like at the end of fifth grade we played like our first concert at a, at a birthday party and played like should i stay or should i go and birthday by the beatles Pretty soon, they evolved past birthday parties and school dances and were playing at real bona fide venues, opening for touring artists. You know, we were pretty competent, so we started getting shows playing at like uh, that the opening for bands playing at like the night touring bands playing at the 930 Club, the old 930 Club in DC. You know, get we opened for like Lenny Kravitz and stuff like that, and for like ska bands coming through. It wasn't just competency that got them there. It was good old-fashioned youthful gusto and a little bit of parental deception. The first thing that they did musically was to tell parents that they were going to a St. Albans basketball game when in fact they boarded a bus, went to American University, met the ska group that were performing that night and somehow talked them, them into letting them open the show. This little... Motley crew. And they did. And it was in the AU paper. And that's how we knew about it to begin with. This band became what those kids did. And they took it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That's really all that we did. We um, wrote our songs and rehearsed every weekend, like, and rehearsed in my basement, rehearsed in my friend Matt's basement. And then we like recorded. We had a manager even. I don't know why we had a manager. They called this band the Ignobles. And as the lineup shifted and settled into itself, it slowly morphed into Jonathan Fireeater. That felt like, okay, this is actually something very, very uh, special. And, uh, you know, it really had a magical quality to it that, uh, that was like just different. It just, I don't know, it just felt different from everything else. And it felt some, like something that we had to, I don't know, it, it excited people in a different way too. And it was just kind of a very exciting, cool thing for us. We've already talked about the next part of this story, playing shows, record deals, dental insurance, parties atop the World Trade Center, drugs, conflict, and the band breaks up. All of this took quite a toll on Walt and Stewart's friendship. But, you know, so it was very uh, disappointing, I would say, to, you know, for drugs to get involved and for it to, to feel it slip away, you know, and to feel that the relationship between me and Stu become this sort of abstract, this weird thing that I couldn't control, you know, or, or that, I, that I didn't understand. You know, I was young. I was, whatever, 20, 21, 22. Um, so I didn't really understand it, and it was just sort of deeply frustrating. Um, and so, yeah, when, when it ended, I, I was pissed, you know? And, um, you know, we didn't, we, it, it, it ended badly. Um, and a lot of damage was done to our friendship, unfortunately. While Walt and a few other members of Jonathan Fireeater went on to form the Walkman, Stewart moved back to Washington, D.C. to live with his parents and study poetry at George Washington University. And yeah, we didn't, we weren't really close for a while. We would see each other. He was in and out of New York. I, I was always in New York, but he was in and out. And so I would see him occasionally. It was always fun to see him, like late night, you know, I would like run into him somewhere and we would have a laugh. Because um, we're very much like brothers, you know, so there was, it was never like, awkward. Uh, it was just, it's hard to explain. Like when somebody's using drugs, it's really, it gets very complicated. And uh, 
But, you know, deep down we had this thing that we loved each other, you know, and that, that, that was always very clear. Even in this strained, nebulous space, music was always a touchstone for the two of them. We would always talk about music just for a second. We'd be like, hey, do you hear this? Did you hear this? Blah, blah, blah. We'd just sort of get that out there. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was hard. This period lasted for quite some time. Walt remained close friends with Stuart's parents, but his relationship with Stu was complicated and confusing, even reflecting on it now. I don't think I have a better understanding of it. I mean, I think that, like, it was a long period where we were really not close. And, we were, and there were, were periods where we really actively, where I actively really, you know, hated him. And I was so... Because things happened too, you know, throughout the, the, those period, the period of us not really seeing each other, there would be little flare-ups, um, uh, and I, it's easy to to lump that. Looking back, to lump that in, oh, that was just that period, but it was a long period, you know. Jonathan Fire Eater broke up in 1998. Stewart returned to music briefly in 2008 with a new band called The Child Ballads, and in 2009 with The Beatons. Both bands released a six-song EP before quietly fading away. Researching this period of Stewart's life is difficult. He was influential enough to help launch turn-of-the-century New York rock, and he was asked to be on the cover of Vice magazine, which he declined. But he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. The closest we get is the entry for The Child Ballads. You can't find any of their music on Spotify, but the EP is on iTunes and Amazon, each one spelling the band name a different way. Amazon lists it as the Child Ballads, where Child Ballads is one word, while iTunes has it as two words, the Child Space Ballads. In a 2005 interview with the New York Post, they drop the article, The, and simply call the band Child Ballads. Two words there, in case you were wondering. I guess this is fitting, though. Stewart had a complicated relationship with Fane. In that same interview, he said, I'm sick to death of the road to excess. The road to excess leads to central booking. Through all this music and beyond, Stewart continued to write poetry, though he rarely, if ever, published it. He was still struggling with drugs, and his mental health continued to plague him. Eventually, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's hard to, it's hard to understand it when it's not happening to you and it's your friend who you knew as somebody who didn't have these voices in his head and, when it's, and it seems like something they're making up or it seems like something that's like drug-induced or something, but, but it wasn't. You know, it was, for him, it was as real as anything and, uh, and absolutely terrifying. In 2015, Stewart attempted suicide. Um, yeah, I flew down to see him in the hospital in D.C. And uh, immediately, because when somebody's on drugs, you're, there's a lot of dishonesty involved, and there's a lot of, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of impossible to have a real relationship because there's, there's always a, a layer of dishonesty. Uh, and it, this, when I laid eyes on him and he opened his eyes, it was just, I could tell immediately that that was gone. After that, Stuart got clean, and he and Walter rekindled their friendship. And as he, as his body healed and he was able to talk, our our friendship um, returned, and we would have these, you know, these great phone conversations talking about 
whatever the past. We cleared up the stuff in the past. We talked about it, you know, and we uh, we just became like we were. And we talked about movies, and we talked about music, and we talked about stuff like that. This period only lasted a few years. Stuart Lupton died on May 27th, 2018. He was 43 years old. Really, I just thank my lucky stars for those two years. Um, and to have, to feel like, you know, otherwise the whole thing, his, his dying would have been just such a, like, oh, what the hell was that? Such a mystery. I would have no, I just would not have been able to get my head around it. But now I really have an understanding and I have a, I don't know, a comfort with, with, with the way that he and I were and, and, and with uh, a, lot, a lot of what happened. And a lot of people who, who knew Stu uh, also had that gift, those last couple of years where he was, you know, very present and, uh, and, and open in a way that he hadn't been before. Long obituaries were written for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and more. What's especially telling is that these obituaries didn't feel all that different from the media coverage he'd received most of his life. In the world of music journalism, Stewart always filled a specific role, the tragic artist. Yeah, I've always hated that framing, you know? I mean, that's just sort of the cliche that it's, 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 it's very easy to, to just to sort of stamp him as that. For Walt and others who knew Stewart, he wasn't just some brilliant artist or tragic fascination. He was the guy they grew up with, the guy they played music with after school. And so, I don't know, he was just very different, and, uh, and, and I really liked him. We had a lot of fun, so we just became very, became very good friends, and we remained very good friends. Uh, it, was, uh, it was, yeah, the start of something that never really ended. In a piece for Vanity Fair, T.A. Frank, the only other member of Jonathan Fire Eater who did not go on to the Walkman, invoked the words of the Who's Pete Townsend. They may be your fucking icons, but they're my fucking friends. Regarding his own media coverage, Stewart said in that 2005 New York Post interview that hopefully if the word drugs is in an article, it would be near the words phase and naive. So here it goes. Stuart Lupton was a poet who loved playing music with his friends. While influential, he was naive and had a long phase of heavy drug use. A phase that he eventually outgrew, allowing him to truly reconnect with those who loved him. To this day, years after his death, his creativity and work continues to inspire. You know, I just get, I, like, I get into a state of being just astounded by something that, that a human has made, you know? And then I'm, and I'm like, I need to achieve that kind of greatness with, with my voice, you know? I need to... I want to make, I need to make something great, you know? Um, and it's nice to, it's kind of an amazing thing to have a, a friend who, um, who produced that stuff. When we come back, we'll continue with the rest of the journey to bring us back to the bear.
Baseball Diamonds as a Track touches on Walt's life and the people he loves. There are stanzas about Christmas mornings, car crashes, hangovers, and the old picture frames that connect a child with the people they never got the chance to meet, but love all the same. Well, remind me, child, your middle name. It's up there in that picture frame. Your mother lost her mother, so her brothers hold the flame. My mom lost her parents young too The pictures in the powder room That smudgy smile Oh, trust me, child It looks a lot like you This is when I become tearful Walter's mom, Judy, on her own parents My mother was a, a conservatory-trained musician who had a perfectly wonderful voice and used it all her life in choral groups and in other ways She was also a music teacher piano teacher and taught at Beaumont School where the kid, our kids went to school. My father was a hard-hitting type A personality lawyer um, who was also really charming, really well-read. Um, his name was Walter, Walter Reynolds Powell, as in uh, Walter is Walter Reynolds Martin. Um, but he very much reminds me of my own father. My father was a very literate man. His thing was reading, and we still have books of his where he reread books, you know, time over and, and marked it in the front of the book. This is not the first time Walt has written about his grandparents. In fact, the bear as a whole was largely inspired by the last time he touched the subject on the seven minute song, The Soldier. The Soldier appeared on his 2020 album, The World at Night an album created in response to Stuart Lepton's death. The title track is called The World at Night, parentheses, For Stu. Much of the imagery from the opening lines was pulled from a collage Stuart had made that hung in Walt's studio. The donkey is a-drinking all the moonlight from the water While the angel and the ox and the fox take a wander through the world at night mm -hmm. The world at night mm -hmm. It's only fitting that this album, with its dark blue cover and late night stare-at-the-ceiling moments, would culminate in the simple, straightforward family history we find on The Soldier. When I was 20 years old, I went into the service. A boy from Staten Island in the Army Corps of Engineers. And I got shipped off to sunny Honolulu. So one of my favorite songs that he's ever written is a, a song about his wife's grandfather called The Soldier. Do you know that song? Matt Berninger of The National. And, and just the turns it takes, and he's he's writing it from the perspective of, of his wife's grandfather who raised her. A lot of it was just documentation for my for my kids and for um, for our family and just so people just so I had it down. And he tells a whole man's life about going to war and then and then this moment you know of of, of finding a dead soldier with a picture of a kid in his pocket and the, the, the details of that. And then it then it then as it unfolds, you find out that this is his wife's grandfather and this is 
the man who raised his wife and this is, you know, and now he's got kids and this is this old man, you know, looking at his children and, and, and it makes him, you know, it, it's just, it's, 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 you can't listen to that song without, without feeling like you've just kind of experienced a whole film or a novel and, and, and it's so moving. And um, he's one of the only writers I know who can, who can write a song like that. When he first wrote it, Walter was unsure about the song. And I just like loved it, but I felt like it was weird. I was like, it's too personal. It's too specific. It's too, I don't know. It felt, I felt I was, I was insecure about it. But after playing it for his wife and World at Night producer Josh Kaufman, who both adored it, Walt decided to put it on the record. Anyway, I, I got me the nerve to do it. And, you know, it ended up being my favorite song on that record. The soldier was personal and specific grandiose in scope, but straightforward and humble in delivery. Its perspective on family, history, and legacy resonates with listeners. It might not be our family history, but it doesn't have to be. It gives us the perspective to reflect on our own. It does feel like he's writing, he's writing songs about generations and, and, and about and about everything that formed him and, and 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 the questions he has about how he'll be remembered and how his children will remember him that sort of idea inspired um you know sort of the feeling behind the bear it's just like i want to write about specifics about my life and and i really a lot of document stuff about my life and about <clears throat> my family and hope that people that will resonate with people but uh yeah so that that was that that song definitely was it was sort of the gateway to the to the bear record when walt sat down to write new music he surrounded himself with his own history old family pictures postcards from friends and some art books and prints that belonged to his good friend Stu. All of this came together to form Baseball Diamonds. Walter recorded that first version of the song as a voice memo on his phone. See, I used to be a pitcher too. I twisted every pitch I threw. My blistered fingers clutching to the stitching as I threw. I stood there chewing on my thumb, wrote stories on my baseball glove, the ballpoint blue, so smooth I drew the shapes the words become. But now flowers fill the ball field, and the seats are soft with sand. I'm drawing it all circles on your hand. Next episode, we'll be diving into the titular track, The Bear, where we start to figure out just where all these memories should go. The Song Is Never Done is a production of Newton's Dark Room. It was written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Talon Stradley. The cover art was created by your brother and mine, Trent Stradley. All the music you heard is by Walter Martin. You can purchase The Bear and all his other albums at waltermartinmusic.com. Instead of an album recommendation, I'm going to suggest you pick up the book The Plural Atmosphere, the only published collection of Stuart Lupton's poetry. 
Walter worked with Stuart's family and friends to collect the poems after his death, and it is a powerful read. The opening lines of this episode were from one of those poems. Special thanks to this episode's guests, Judy Martin and Matt Berninger. Thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, Fuzzy Delp, Sonny Werner, and Mac Ito. If you want your name in the credits, plus buttons, special transcripts, and more, support Newton's Dark Room on Patreon. I just got the buttons in the mail, and they look fantastic. I make lots of podcasts, and I love talking about podcasts, as well as appreciating the loved ones in our lives. If you want to chat about any of this, you can find me at Newton's Dark Room on Instagram and TikTok. For the rest of my podcasts and everything else, you can visit newtonsdarkroom.com. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next time.